Thanks so much for being here with us. Thanks for braving the whole hour difference time stuff. Um, it is always messes with our bodies. I, I heard rumors that maybe they're doing away with time, daylight savings time. I will be glad when they do. Um, that would be great, but thanks for being here together with us today. We are in chapter 9 of Judges. We're continuing in our series in the book of Judges. If you're visiting here with us, we've been going through the book of Judges for the past probably eight or nine weeks or so, and we've now come to chapter 9. If you haven't been with us, you need to know that this chapter is not in isolation. This chapter is also the only chapter not about a judge. This is the only chapter in all the book of Judges that's not about a judge. It's actually about an anti-judge. It's about really the downward spiral, the culmination of the downward spiral of Israel. And it really shows us the fruit of how Israel has been living, the fruit of how Israel's judges have been living, the fruit of their pursuits. And so we're going to see really that not only Gideon has reaped in his half-son Abimelech, he's, he's not only reaped the fruit of his bad parenting, his idolatry, his self-indulgence, but the entire nation reaps that as well. So let's turn to chapter 9 of Judges. We're going to read it just in pieces. This is a long passage. We're going to read it in the first six verses together. Now Abimelech, the son of Rebabal, went to Shechem, to his mother's relatives, and said to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, Which is better for you, that all seventy of the sons of Jerubbabel rule over you, or that the one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on, behalf, on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal Bareth, which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbabel, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabel, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together and all at Beth Milo and they all went and they made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. God, this is a sobering passage. God, thank you for giving us sobering passages like this because you love us, Lord, and you want us to turn to you, that you don't want to leave us in our sin, you don't want to leave us to ourselves. Thank you for giving us passages like this as a warning, not only to your people of old, but to us today. God, I pray that you would help us see what you have for us through your word. Holy Spirit, would you speak to each and every one of our hearts and minds, would you speak to my heart and mind, to each and every one of us, Lord, would you speak through um, your word? Would you speak through my words? Would you exalt yourself, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the question that we're posed with as we come to this chapter is, who is our enemy? We were left at the end of chapter 8 with Gideon. Gideon, he had conquered all of these enemies, but then soon after he conquered all these enemies, he became self-indulgent. He, he turned inward, really. He accumulated to himself many wives, it says. He had over 70 male children, which means he had tons of other kids, too. 
And then he also accumulated, not, not only was he self-indulgent, accumulating tons of wives, he had a foreign wife in a foreign city in Shechem that he kept on the side, didn't marry her, didn't provide for her because he was self-indulgent. And then he led the people in worshiping his own idol. He made an idol, an ephod, which is a priestly garment, and he set it up and he put it in his own city so people could come and worship at his shrine. And now we see that the fruit of how he has led. We see really how the people responded to the end of chapter 8. And it says that, that they forgot the ways of the Lord. They did not remember the Lord and his ways. And, and they didn't honor really what God had done through Gideon either. And now we see that Abimelech in this verse, he's the halfling son of Gideon. And he does some really awful things. And, and as we're reading this passage, you wonder, why in the world is this here? Why is this passage, this brutal passage, and it doesn't end here, all through chapter 9, it is brutality after brutality. It is ugliness. It is the worst of the worst. We have this anti-hero, this anti-judge, really, in a sense, an anti-Christ in Abimelech, but how did they get here? And it's important to think about the fact that this is the first major enemy who conquers Israel in the book of Judges, who's not on the outside. This enemy is not on the outside. This enemy isn't the Midianites. This enemy isn't their neighbors all around them. This enemy is different. And it should beg us to ask the question, well, who, who, is, who is the enemy here? Who is the enemy of God's people? Who are our enemies? And welcome back, kids. Thanks for practicing, by the way. Glad to have you back. The question that this chapter asks is, who is the enemy? Who is our enemy? Who, are, who, are the, who is the enemy of God's people? And what we're meant to see is that the enemy is not just without, but really the enemy comes from within. There's a deadly enemy that God's people overlook, they become complacent about, they downplay, and this passage really reveals that the enemy, the real enemy, the real danger of God's people is not all the people outside who are opposed to Judaism or opposed to Christianity. That's not the biggest danger. The biggest danger is not what people might do to our bodies, what, how people might rob us of our livelihood. Those are not the biggest enemies. The biggest enemies are not uh, political rivals on the outside. The biggest enemy that we see here in this passage is a warning about the deadly enemy from within and God wants us to see it that we pursue our own ways if we live according to our own desires if we seek power and influence and the things of the world the lust of the eyes the lust of the flesh the pride of life and that's what Abimelech is living for then it's going to lead to our own demise and we'll see that by the end of the chapter and I think that the main idea that God would have for us today for our for our church is that if if we seek our own way, God, God will give us what we want and we'll get what we deserve. If we seek our own way, God gives us what we want and we'll get what we deserve. And, and there's a very sobering note all throughout the passage. And it, it not only begins with this awful murders, but it ends really with this sobering note of, of the justice of God. And as a whole, you see that it's all about the fact that there's an enemy that's greater than the enemy without, and that's the enemy within. And if we seek our own way, God's going to give us what we want. And, and if, if we get what we want, seeking our own way, we're going to get what we deserve. 
And the first thing we see is Abimelech, he's willing to do whatever it took to get what he wanted. He's willing to do whatever it takes. And we see this this legacy of this self-indulgence, this legacy of idolatrous leadership coming home to roost in Abimelech. And then he is the epitome, all of the sins that his father Gideon have modeled have become magnified in him. And we see this deadly enemy of self-interest. We see this deadly enemy of self-interest because that's what's driving Abimelech. His self-interest is driving him. He, he, nobody, nobody says, hey, Abimelech, we want you to be king. By the way, there's, there's 71 of you. You're, there's 70 sons of Gideon. You're the 71st. You're a halfling. And by the way, Gideon, we, we, Abimelech, we would love you to be king. No, but what we see here is that Abimelech, he is looking to prove himself. He wants power. He's self-interested. He's willing to do whatever it takes. And the slow drip that he got from his father's example of self-indulgence, living as if he deserved whatever he wanted, it bore fruit. Abimelech was living for externals. He was living to revel in power. He was living for what he could get in the glory that he could get by position. And he, and he apparently wasn't living in Shechem. He, he probably was living over in Ophrah near his father's brother. But he's savvy and he's calculating. And he sees that he has a chance to take over. He sees he has a chance to assert himself. And now you think, well, maybe this is the fruit of, maybe this is all Gideon's fault. But no, that's not how the Bible reads things. Abimelech makes his own choices here. Yes, he's the product of his his father's terrible choices. But Abimelech has a choice. And what he chooses is to live for his own self-interests. Often, if we have parents who didn't affirm us or we feel like we're on the outside we we can grow up looking for approval from other people we can look to prove ourselves that we're good enough that we're powerful enough that we're acceptable enough or or we can react and saying you know we don't care about any of those things all of those things really are our choices how we choose to respond to the circumstances and situations that we are raised in is really up to us and we see here that that he is choosing this deadly enemy of self-interest and so he asks them, he comes and he appeals to their selfish natures too. The people of Shechem were not morally neutral here by any means. He comes and he appeals to their selfish natures and he says, hey, is it better for you? What's really good for you? Isn't that how the devil tempts us too? The devil comes and says, what's, what's really best for you? Not how can we honor God? Not, not what does it mean to obey God's word? Not what does it look like to love God with all our hearts, our minds, and our souls, but but we're tempted when we start to ask the question, what's best for us? What's in it for me? And so he comes to them and he says, hey, what's better for you? Is it better for you that all 70 of these sons rule over you or that, that I rule over you? And he appeals to their self-interest. They're, they're not being noble here. He's, he's appealing to the fact that, that he can get them what they want. And whenever we start down that path, that's the, the deceitful path that the devil uses that remaining sin within us rears its ugly head and tries to get us to go away from the Lord, this deadly enemy within. What's best for you? What's in it for you? What's, what are you going to get out of it? And so they, he goes to them and he appeals to their selfish natures. And then not only that, he appeals to their preference, their ethnicity, really. The people of Shechem were, were not typically native Israelites. They, they were originally from Canaan, Israel had been given Shechem and his inheritance, but it had been, been populated by Canaanites primarily, and they never drew, drove them out. And so he appeals, actually, to ethnicity. He plays the race card and says, well, well are, 
those people aren't like you, but I'm like you. You know, my mom, my, my identity is in my mom's ethnicity. And so he appeals to that. And there's a sense of identifying with their ethnicity. And there's divisions that begin to grow. He appeals to their self-interest as I'm your flesh and, and bone. And he, he, he fools them into thinking somehow he's going to give them what they think they deserve. Isn't that how we're tempted as well? We often are tempted when we give in to what we think we deserve. Maybe this will be better for us. Maybe we'll get something good out of the deal. And that sin is alluring. His relatives then, he appeals to them, he says, hey, I want you to go, I want you to put a bug in all the ears of the elders of the, men, of the leaders of Shechem. I want you to tell them these same things. And so his, his relatives, they go and do that. They act on his behalf. He's manipulating, he is conniving, he is doing whatever it takes to get what he wants. That should give pause to us. Are, are, what's motivating our desires? Are we seeking our own interests? Are we, are we willing to do whatever it takes to manipulate, to move things around, to get what we want? If so, there's a subtle slide to sin. The enemy within. And then he goes to them and they say, we, we really want you. And, and here's what they do. They, they pay him to assassinate his brothers. And so he, they give him 70 shekels of silver. Essentially, it's one shekel per brother to go and, and hire hitmen. And so he hires some worthless, reckless fellows. He hires hitmen. And they go and they capture all of his brothers and they slaughter them on one stone. And this isn't just something subtle. This isn't battle. This is one after the other on one stone, like you would slaughter an animal. So he takes a brother and he slaughters him on stone. And he takes another one, takes another one. It would be a long time. He slaughters all 70 of his brothers on one stone. And he's acting here like this brutal, systematic Canaanite lord. He's gone so far from God that he's acting like God's enemies. He's showing that, that he's the one in power. He's, he's demonstrating by doing this that yeah, he, he is brutal and no one can oppose him. He's, he's, he has gotten so far down the path of sin that he's willing to do whatever it takes. Somehow though he misses one. Somehow the youngest brother Jotham hit himself without being noticed but that's just kind of a side note. We'll see more of that in a minute. The author is setting us up here to see that that's going to have some repercussions, that he, the fact that he misses one. But the elders of Shechem, they, they all take him and they anoint him as king. And they do it, it says, by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. And we're not exactly sure which oak of the pillar at Shechem it was, but most likely, at least I think it was, it was, it was probably the pillar that Joshua had just set up in the land a, a few years before. Joshua had erected a pillar or a stone in Shechem as a witness of the covenant between God and the people. In Joshua 24, it tells us, it says, Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place his statues and rules for them at Shechem. This is the place of the covenant. And yet what we're going to see is that pursuing self-interest is the undoing of the covenant. And it says, Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth, or the oak, that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it's heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. And now we see that that's exactly what has happened. That this, 
this, this place that was supposed to be a testimony to the covenant has now become a testimony to the fact that the covenant has been broken and God's about to bring the, all the curses of the covenant on them for pursuing their own way. They're acting in their own self-interest. They don't just pay for the assassination of the sons of Gideon, but they appoint this power-hungry, self-serving Abimelech. Why? Because they want to get something from him. They think he will do something for them. They don't even consider God at all. We see this deadly enemy of self-interest, and I think it's meant to be a sobering reality for all of us. Are we living for ourselves? Are we living to accumulate power? Are we living to approve ourselves? Are we living to get a name? If so, it'll have devastating results. And that's what we see in the world around us. So many of the, the sources of all the problems that we see in business and politics and government is, is, is people looking to gain power for themselves, to accumulate to themselves, to do what is in their own self-interest. That's why there's so much division in the country today. It's, it's not one politician, another politician has caused us. No, it's what's within all of us, this deadly enemy within, this deadly enemy of self-interest. Are we living for ourselves or for our own glory? That's, that's what we're confronted with. Are we living for our interests or God's interests? Are we living to love God with all our heart, mind, soul and love others like our neighbor? Or are we living to love ourselves? Or do we toy with or act like self-indulgence and self-interest is no big deal? And this is a warning against that. If we live like that, it's going to lead to doing whatever it takes to get what we want. And we see these deadly consequences not only in our lives and in the lives of those around us through this passage we see this deadly enemy of forsaking faithfulness and integrity as well. Not just the, the deadly enemy of self-interest, but the deadly enemy of forsaking faithfulness and integrity. Playing fast and loose with integrity. Playing fast and loose with faithfulness and saying it's no big deal. And so that's what we see in, in, the, in verses 7 to 21 of Judges 9. It says, When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood at the top of Mount Gerizim. And he cried aloud and said to them, listen to me, you leaders of Shechem. And we have the scripture for you on the overheads, by the way, so we can track with that. That'd be good. Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go and hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the fig tree, you come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. And you're wondering what in the world is going on here? Jotham, he is, he is telling a prophetic parable. He gets on the top of Mount Gerizim. And by the way, this is the place where Moses commanded Joshua. He says, when you go into the land, I want you to pronounce all the blessings of obeying the covenant from Mount Gerizim. And what we see here is the complete reverse of that. After they've broken the covenant in Shechem, after they have showed that they're living for their own self-interest, they're living for the Baals, they're not living for God, now we see that Jotham, he comes and he pronounces this prophetic word that is not a blessing for Mount Gerizim, but it is a curse. It's the, supposed to be a place of blessing, and it's now the place of anti-blessing. But Jotham, notice he doesn't address Abimelech, he addresses the leaders of Shechem. 
because there's still hope for them. There's still a chance for them. Even though they paid for him to hire hitmen to assassinate all of his own brothers, he says, listen to me that God might listen to you. And God's people, as they're hearing this book of the Bible read, as they're reading this book, as, as we hear this read, we're really to hear that phrase, listen to God's word so that God might listen to us. That, that we might respond. Listen in the sense of not just hearing God's word, but, but responding, repenting. Responding to God so that, that God actually would, would forgive, that he would show mercy. And he tells this parable, and he says there was this olive tree. They went to this, the, the people of Israel are kind of represented as trees, they were strong, they were mighty, these, these cedars of Lebanon, these 135 or so foot tall trees, eight feet around, these cedars of Lebanon, and they're going around looking for someone to lead them, which is kind of silly because they go to an olive tree, and olive trees aren't very big, but they produce fruit that's beneficial, and, and, and they go to the olive tree, and the olive tree says, no, I don't have time to be self-serving, instead I want to produce oil that continues to honor God and men. And then they ask the fig tree, but the fig tree doesn't want to leave its sweetness and good fruit. It's a benefit to society because it can be used as food or wine or sweetener. It says, I don't want to do that to hold sway over the trees. And then they go to the, the grapevine. The grapevine declines. It says, you know, why, why would I stoop to hold sway or rule over the trees when, when my wine cheers God and man? It benefits others. All, all three of these trees were, were trees that actually produced something that were beneficial, that were um, honoring people that, that gave goodness, that weren't self-interested. And they all declined because they're not self-interested. And said these trees, this is a silly picture, these huge trees of Lebanon, they go to bramble. And the closest thing that we might have in our minds to bramble might be something like tumbleweed, but with thorns. It's, it's this really dry, fruitless, barren weed. And it's really good for nothing except to be burned, and, it, and it's got thorns, and it's, it, it's not only not beneficial, but it, it doesn't help, it only hurts. And he uses this, and he says, the trees go to this bramble, this thing that has nothing to offer, and this bramble makes promises that it can't keep. This bramble says, if in good faith you're anointing me as king, then come and take refuge in my shade. Now, how silly of a picture is that? But that's often what we do. We, we go to things that we think will benefit us, that we think will give us what we want, and instead, they, they don't. They can only harm us. They can only hurt us. And he says, this bramble, the trees, these cedars of Lebanon go and say, hey, can we, can we find shade under you? It makes no sense. This bramble promises something to them that it can never deliver. And he says, but if not, let fire come out, because bramble was used for fire, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. And so we see this kind of an ominous warning here. And then it says in verses 16 to 20, so let's read together in Judges 9, 16 to 21. He interprets his parable that he's told them. He says, now therefore, if you've acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king and you've dealt well with Jeroboam and his house and have done to him as his deeds deserved... For my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian. And you've risen up against my father's house this day and killed his son, 70 men of one stone. And you've made Abimelech the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he's your relative. If then you've acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubbaal and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech. And so let him rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech. And devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo, and let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo, and devour Abimelech. 
And then Jotham, he, he runs away. He says, Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. No surprise he's scared. No surprise he goes away. Abimelech is deadly. But what he's doing here is he's questioning their integrity. He's saying, if you've acted in good faith, and if you've acted in integrity towards Jerobabal or, or Gideon, if you dealt with him according to all his deeds deserve, after all the fact that he fought for you, he gave his life for you, he risked everything for you, but yet you're not acting in good faith. You're not acting in integrity. And so if you're not, if, if, if you've not acted in a way that's full of good faith and integrity, then What's going to happen is fire is going to come out from that very thing that you thought would give you what you wanted, that very person, the bramble, Abimelech, the one who they put all their hope in to give them what they wanted. Then fire is going to come out from this worthless, self-seeking Abimelech. And fire, he says, not just going to happen that way, but it's going to consume everybody. Fire is going to consume Abimelech, and, and then fire is going to consume the people of Shechem. He's pronouncing a curse. They're going to assume each other if they haven't acted in good faith and integrity. And God not only wants us to see that it's deadly to pursue our own self-interest, but it's deadly to act in ways that are not in keeping with faithfulness, that are not in keeping with integrity. What we do, how we live matters. How we walk matters. How we act matters. The, the motives of our heart matter. Faithfulness to God and acting in good faith towards God and his people matters. And even here, honoring, honoring those who have helped us, who have led in, in ways that honor God, that matters. And Jotham, he prophetically warns them so they might repent and God might hear them. If we're acting in self-interest, if we're acting in a way, it's not keeping with the integrity that God has called us to. If we're not walking in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called, then we need to watch out because it's deadly. The question is, will we listen to the warning and repent so that God might re respond and forgive? If not, what we see is, is really verses 22 to 49. They show us these deadly consequences of giving in to the enemy within. They show the deadly consequences of giving in to the enemy, of, of giving in to self-interest, of, of giving in to compromising our integrity, of, of giving in to uh, living in a way that's faithless. These deadly consequences of giving in to the enemy within, and they are horrifying. We'll see them in verses 22 to 49. Let's read it together. It says, Abimelech ruled over Israel three years, and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. That the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubbabal might come. Did you catch that? God sent an evil spirit. So that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubbabal might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And then it tells a story about how they put an ambush against him on the mountaintops. It says, and they robbed all who passed by them along that way. And it was told to Abimelech and Gaal, the son of Ebed, he moves into Shechem with his relatives and the leaders of Shechem. They put confidence in him. And when they went out to the field, they gathered grapes in their vineyards and they trod them and held a festival. They went into the house of their God and ate and drank and reviled Abimelech. And Gaal, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech? And who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubbabal and is not Zebul his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But why should we serve him? Would that this people were under my hand, then I would remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, Increase your army and come out. When Zebul, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gaal, the son of Ebed, his anger was kindled. And he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly, saying, Behold, Gaal, the son of Ebed, and his relatives have come to Shechem, and they are stirring up the city against you. 
Now therefore go by night, you and the people who are with you, and set an ambush in the field. Then in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise early and rush on the city. And when he, he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may do them as your hand finds. And Abimelech and all the men who were with him rose up by night, and they set an ambush against Shechem and four companies. And the Gal, this, the the son of Ebed went out and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city and Abimelech and the people with him arose from the ambush. And when Gaal saw the people, he said to Zebul, look, people are coming down from the mountaintops. And Zebul said, oh, you mistake the shadow of the mountains for men. Gaal spoke again and says, look, people are coming down from the center of the land and one company is coming from the direction of the diviner's oak. Then Zebul turned and said to him, where's your mouth now? You who said, who is Abimelech, that we should serve him. Are not these the people who you despise? Go out and fight with them. Then Gaal went out the head of the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him and he fled before him. And many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. And Abimelech lived at Rumah. And Zebul drove out Gaal and his relatives so they could not dwell at Shechem. On the following day, the people went out to the field. And Abimelech was told. He took his people and divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the fields. And he looked and saw the people coming out of the city. So he rose against them and killed them. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city while the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captures the city and he killed the people who were in it. And he razed the city and sowed it with salt. When all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard it, they entered the stronghold of the house of Elbereth. Abimelech was told all the leaders of the tower of Shechem were gathered together and Abimelech went up to the Mount Zalman. He and all the people who were with him and Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood and took it up and laid it on his shoulder and he said to the men who were with him, what you've seen me do, hurry, do as I've done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle and following Abimelech put it against the stronghold and they set the stronghold on fire over them so that all the people of the tower of Shechem also died, about a thousand men and women. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it, but there was a strong tower within his city, and all the men and women of the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in, and they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, A woman killed me. And this young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. And here's the explanation. It says, Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbabal. What do we see? We see these, these deadly consequences. The deadly consequences of, of giving in to self-interest, of, of acting against faithfulness and integrity. We see these deadly consequences of giving in to the enemy within. And everybody's burnt. Abimelech's rule is short. He's not a judge. He's a ruthless king who rules for three years. And he only came really to kill, to steal, and destroy. He didn't come to help, to serve. And although it seems like he's, he's all-powerful at the beginning... Because he's conquering everybody, he's killing everybody all through this passage. He, he not only wipes out his enemy, he wipes out all the people of Shechem. He wipes out the towns nearby. He's, he's like, yeah, you gave them safe harbor, now I'm going to kill you. Their own self-interest led to their own demise. And he kills them all. And you think, well, Abimelech, he's this ruthless ruler, but God is saying, no, 
He's the one ultimately controlled. You, what, what, what a man sows, that will he reap. And it says in verse 23 and 24 that, that God sent this evil spirit so that all of the violence he committed would come back on him. And then it tells us again at the end of the passage, does God return the evil of Abimelech? And God made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. In the end, God has his justice. They think they're getting away with it. They think they're getting away with self-interest. They think they're getting away with living for themselves, pursuing their own desires, looking for power, looking to, to live by their own rules. They even hold a big festival. You know, in the passage, they're, they rebel against Shechem because God sent this evil spirit. I mean, the people of Shechem rebel against Abimelech because God sends an evil spirit. So they, they send up people into the mountains to rob all the people going on the highways. They're trying to destabilize things. They hold a big festival. They celebrate someone who probably had returned when he, he probably left town when Abimelech came and was appointed king and now he's back because Abimelech's not around. This guy named Gaal, he comes back into town. He's, he's very boastful. And then he tells the people, I'll give you what, I, what you want. I'll get rid of that guy. I'll give you exactly what you want. But he couldn't fulfill that promise either. They look to this other false hope to give them what they wanted. In all of this, God seems to be absent. They gather in their temple, they eat, and they drink, they revile, they curse Abimelech. The city's overrun with drunk men talking trash. And maybe by all this encouragement from the people around him, this guy named Gaal, he stands up and he kind of makes this big speech and he says, why are we serving him? Aren't we our own people? Can't we live according to our rules? Aren't we, aren't we people of Shechem? We're not like those Israelites. If, you're, if you are under my hand, I'll get rid of Abimelech. He basically says, you know, if Abimelech were here, I'd tell him to gather his army and bring it. That's what he tells him. And he plays the ethnic card. Why are you following someone who isn't of one of us? He plays the pride card. Why are you serving Abimelech instead of being true to your own? And why are you cowering under his rule? Continues to play to all of their self-interest, their desires, their pride. All the places they look for identity outside of God. But he doesn't realize that he is actually part of God's plan to take Abimelech down. His Abimelech's commander, Zebul, sends messengers to Abimelech. Abimelech comes. He tells him to set up an ambush. Gaal's having his morning, co morning coffee out at the gate with Zebul, the commander, and he's you know, sipping his coffee and looking out, and he's like, isn't that people coming down from the mountains? And Zebul's like, nah, you're seeing things, just shadows. And then all of a sudden, his kind of eyes grow wide, and he spits his coffee out, and he sees that, no, they're, they're coming from center of land. They're coming from all over the place. And then Zebul's like, yeah, I told you. Where's your, where's your mouth now? You think you're really big? And so it's too late. He's overconfident. He brags in his ability. He's about to be overwhelmed. And we can, we can become overconfident, thinking sin won't hurt us. We can be overconfident in our pride, our boasting, thinking we're, we're good enough to combat sin. We're good enough to combat our enemies. We're good enough and big enough and strong enough. We can do that. We'll, we'll conquer. We can be good enough and strong enough on our own. We don't, we don't need anybody to rule over us. What they didn't realize is that sin is constantly crouching at our door. Isn't that one of the first things that, that God said to, to Adam's son? who wanted, 
He was jealous. He wanted his brother's place. He wanted his brother's honor. And he, and he goes, God goes to him in, in Genesis 4, 7. It says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you don't do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. But you must rule over it. Sin's crouching at our door. Sin's, sin will consume us if we aren't on guard, if we aren't aware, if we give in to those desires. Those desires are for us. But we must rule over it. Zebul, he turns to God and says, where's your mouth now? Put your money where your mouth is. And so he dares him to do it. He goes out and he loses to Abimelech. The next day, Abimelech comes in. He kills everyone. He goes and he sets fire to the tower. He, he slaughters all the people of the town who come out because they'd given, they'd given Gaal honor, respect. They'd given him a place to live. They'd given him a place of safety. And so Abimelech has this scorched earth policy. And we see that this is all part of God's hand. God's bringing back on them. The very thing that they desired was what ends up consuming them. It was the very instrument that, that God uses to, to bring justice, to bring their downfall. And in the end, Abimelech, he's about to go to the second town and he's going to burn that tower too. But just when he's about to do that, he's just about to light that fire. I can imagine he's bending over and there's this woman, she had probably, you know, run out of the fields carrying a millstone thinking, hey, if we're going to survive, we better be able to turn that grain into flour. And so she takes this millstone, probably a foot or two around, four or five inches thick. It's a pretty, pretty heavy millstone. She's at the top of the tower. She sees him down there, so she chucks it and she crushes his head. But he's so proud still in his final breath that, that he doesn't want it to be said that a woman killed him. And so he asks this, this young boy to drive him through. And that even in his death, God is exposing that he's living for himself. He's, he's living for his own pride. Even in his death, to his final moment. And this supposedly strong man, there's some irony here. This strong man who killed 70 brothers on one stone, he's now killed by a woman with one stone. At the beginning, he played this, this card of being the son of his of his mother, the Shechemite, that's where he found his identity in this ethnicity and he uses that to take the throne but now we see this unnamed woman take away his identity. So the beginning and the end of his rule are marked by women. All the people of Israel, they followed, they go, they give up, they go back home when the head of the leader's crushed. And then the narrator in verse 56 and 57, he pulls back the curtain and says, this is what's really happening. He says, this is what happens when, when you give in to your own desires, when you give in your own self-interest, when you let the enemy within rule. And so he says, thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing 70 brothers, and God made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their own heads. And upon them came the curse of Jerubbabel. Well, why does God have this passage here? He wants us to see that the, the biggest enemy of God's people is not the lands around them. The biggest enemy is not all the externalities, not all the external influences. The biggest enemy comes when, as they give in to their own self-interest, their own self-desires, as they give in to remaining sin, as they pursue their own good ahead of pursuing God. And, and God brings divine retribution, an eye for an eye. He says, if you, if you pursue your own way, I'm going to give you over to your own way in the end that's going to lead to your very downfall. Isn't that what Romans 1 and 2 tells us? 
We didn't, they didn't glorify God. Instead, they worshiped the creature instead of worshiping the creator. And God gave them up to the desires, the lust of their own flesh. And that lust of their own flesh ended up being their very downfall. And, and that's not just an Old Testament idea. It's a New Testament idea as well. In Galatians 6, it tells us of, of this, this deceitfulness of sin. It says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And then he says something. He says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. One who's taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. This, this passage in the Old Testament is not just about what happened to them back then. God's trying to show us the dangers really of self-interest, the, the deadly enemy of forsaking faithfulness and integrity and the deadly consequences of giving in to the enemy within. It shows that in the end, if we continue to pursue our own ways, God will give us over to our own ways and those own ways will be our demise and then God will actually carry out justice. His justice will be met. God always carries out justice. And we see in this that, that God is sovereign and he uses all kinds of circumstances. He's always in control. He's, he's working all things. He's bringing about his plans to carry out justice as well. And he carries out this divine retribution. He destroys the destroyers of his people. But ultimately, he doesn't abandon his people. See, he actually, he uses, he uses this justice to get rid of, of the evil that would corrupt the people. Gideon's apostasy, it's, it's fully realized in his sons. His, his false kingship comes to full fruit in his son. Ruin comes from evil within. And God gives them over to their desires. And there's going to be justice for all who pursue their own way. And that's the warning that we have. So what do we do with that? As, as New Testament believers, do we just stop there and say, now go and do better. Go and do the best you can. And if not, if you screw up, if you mess up, you're done. Well, that would be true if we didn't have the gospel. If God did not make a way, then, then he would turn us over to our own ways, and then he also would punish us for pursuing a life apart from him. And it would be just, it would be good if we receive the just punishment for our sins. It would be just and good and right. But that's not what happens. He's defeated our enemies. The enemy that we could not defeat was the enemy of sin, the enemy within. And, and Christ came to do what we could not do by taking in his own flesh not only the, the penalty for all of our sins, but also proving that he is able to conquer sin by saying no to sin in every way. And so our hope is not in ourselves, our hope's in him. That he, God's justice is always met, but the hope is that Christ has met God's justice fully. He's fully earned all the favor that we deserve. He's, he's lived in, in the way that, that we are called to live, that we should live. Christ has lived that way completely. 
And then he's taken all this divine retribution that, that we deserve on himself. And so then we can trust in him in this great exchange. Because God's justice is always met. It just can be met in Christ for all who put their faith in him. So what do we do when we find we can't stop sinning? We turn to him. We repent. We hear his warnings. We return to him. We give thanks that he has already earned all the favor before God that we could ever want. And we also put all of our sins on him afresh. Every time we confess our sins, we by faith place our sins on Christ and say, thank you that you already died for this. I'm gonna remember that so that now I can be set free. And you know what Romans 6 tells us? He's defeated our enemy and we don't have to live that way any longer. Romans 6, 1 to 14 says, what shall we say then? Or we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the bed by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we've died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign. It doesn't have to reign. Let not therefore sin reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Here's the wonderful promise. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. We don't have to live and walk by the flesh anymore, but we do need to say no to the temptations of the flesh. And we can say no to the temptations of the flesh because Jesus came to do what we could not do. He came to give his life as a ransom. He came not to seek his own, but to seek and save the lost. He was constantly faithful, always acted with integrity, and he took these deadly consequences so that we don't get what we deserve. Instead, we get all that he deserved. So how do we respond? I think we're, we're to respond with some sobriety and realize that we, we can't take these things lightly. And we need to be aware that there's a remaining enemy. And that that enemy is dangerous. It's deadly. But then we can respond and say, but I don't have to give in to those things. Because now Jesus, because he's given me his Holy Spirit, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells within me. And he will enable me to respond and live for him. But it's also a call to holiness. It's a call to put away all the things that have to do with living for the flesh. Put away with living for our own self-interest. Put away those things that have to do with our old sin nature. Instead, now put on Christ. I'd like to close with a song. Um, if we could change, I think it was the second song, Philip, um, How Rich a Treasure We Possess. 
We'll close with that and then we'll give God's thanks for the treasure that we possess in him. I'll pray and then we'll sing. Father, thank you. Thank you that you don't leave us in our sins. You don't give us what we deserve. But you gave Christ all that we deserve and you give us all that he deserved. Thank you that there's hope. Lord, help us walk soberly and uprightly. Help us walk aware that there's a remaining enemy, but Lord, you have already conquered that enemy, Lord, that we can say no to sin because of you. Help us fight in faith, Lord. Help us fight with sobriety and humility, depending on you, looking to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.